Welcome back to the State of Us podcast for the 13th episode. It's me, of course, your host, Emil Camus Bateman, and I'm recording solo today. Whether you're a returning listener or here for the first time, if you are here for the first time, I want to I want to welcome you to the show. Uh, and I also want to thank all of you for tuning in. That's what the show's about. It's obviously listeners, as all podcasts are. I have a pretty interesting podcast today for y'all. We're going to be discussing populism. Now, you might have heard that word before in the news, but we're going to really get into what that means and why I personally believe it's the way forward for us in the Western world. And to be honest, all over, but we mostly have control over our politics in the Western world. So it's a pretty sunny day today here in Salt Lake, and it's been it's been quite rainy, and I believe there was some snow on the mountains, and which is unusual here. It's starting to become summer. So it's been really nice to have the sun out, and I'm, I'm feeling inspired and pretty good today. So if you're listening to Convenience, I break up the show into easily digestible segments, so you can listen to the episode in all of its glory, in its entirety, or simply just the topics that most interest you. You can find the timestamp segments in the episode description. On Sundays or around Sundays, we talk about music, TV shows, movies, or books that are worthy of our time. On Tuesdays, we hold discussion and discourse on the most important political issues, digest the news as it relates to the youth of today, and offer perspective on some contentious issues, like we're going to be doing today. On Thursday, we just, we cover lifestyle choices, random facts, and hell, anything else that interests me, and hopefully you. And I just want to say, this, these have been late. I have not been uploading since uh, Sunday, uh, a week ago. And I'd just rather bring you a quality show than have something that's on time, but it's hastily done and not worthy of your time. I know that your time is important. So these things might not always be on the days that they're coming, but I apologize for that. I do go to university online on Zoom, of course. Shout out to Zoom University. But yeah, without further ado, let's get right into the show. So back in 2016, we had two choices, of course, in America. And the populist movements have been have been building, I'd say, from about 2014. But it really started entering the lexicon of the media, the word populism, back in 2015 or so. And people were just losing their shit, quite frankly. Our choices were, in the primaries, a slew of establishment Republicans that basically just took George W. Bush's political ideology and creamed it up for the 2016 election season and throw in a little bit of underlying racism towards Obama and liberals in general. Of course, this was the first election since the Tea Party movement gained popularity. If you don't know the Tea Party, it's it was a pretty hardcore faction of the Republican Party that was for low taxes, really libertarian ideology, pro-gun to the point where you want no restrictions, and it was a total rebranding. It was more radical in some ways than the Bush's administration. It included some people that were isolationist in terms of foreign policy, but nearly united unanimously by a love of free market trade and small government and all those good things that we have known 
that we've come to know the Republican Party to be for since that time. And Donald Trump completely went against this. He, probably the most genuine thing about the man is his recognition that we've completely sold out our working class to China. There's no inherent reason why we don't export things anymore. I'm sure some of you might have seen that map. It says in 2001, or I think even it was in 2006 or something. Could have been later than 2001. There were a whole bunch of countries where the U.S. was their number one, where the U.S. was the number one exporter to that country. Today, I think there's a little more than five or six that remain of that. And China has taken the place of the United States. Now, you might argue, you know, if you're listening from and you're not an American, you might argue, well, that's a bit imperialist. I mean, it doesn't really matter to us who, you know, who controls the stuff. And I'll say, I think you'll find that when America was the number one exporter, your goods were probably, yes, probably a bit more expensive. But you were, A, not contributing money to a system that oppresses people to the, to the extent that China does, gives them no rights, uh, goes back in their promises with regards to Hong Kong, and literally puts Muslim people, the Uyghur Muslims, in concentration camps because they don't line up with the communist ideology. So how do we get to this situation? This is a bit of a tangent, but China was entered into the, was allowed to be part of the World Trade Organization around this time. I'm not sure if it was the late 90s or the early 2000s, but when China was permitted to enter this body, it was basically a green light for them to enter the World Trade stage. And according to conventional wisdom around the time, 80s economic philosophy, this should have been a good thing. They should have slowly relaxed their communist uh, propaganda and slowly opened up and maybe have become closer to a democratic country. This is not what happened. See, yeah, China became a capitalist country, of course. Nobody can dispute this. Nobody actually thinks that the economic framework of China is a communist economy. No, of course not. What China is, is it's effectively a fascist state that puts both the the majority ethnic group, the Han people at the front, as well as the large, the, the humongous communist party in infrastructure. And... Basically, the country exists to profit off of all of the poor people and export a bunch of low-quality goods to the rest of the world at prices that simply we can't compete with because we have laws that say we can't treat workers like that. <laughs> they're, not, they're not the best. We could go a lot further. But China has none, basically. For a country that supposedly cares about the workers, they sure pay them very little. You know, kids making T-shirts and Adidas sneakers and Nike socks. I don't know. Everything's made in China. And if you combine this with the government that's willing to literally devalue their own currency so that it is so attractive to import from China, which ultimately is not good for their citizens if they want to buy anything outside of China and engage in the world at all, but they don't care about that. So, I mean, enough about China, but Trump realized this. And I'd say that's his most populist stand economically. And then we have Bernie Sanders, who is less about foreign policy. He used to be very critical of, and he still is, 
but of you know free trade and NAFTA and all of these corporatist policies that uh, characterized the United States administrations from Bill Clinton through to Bush and then to Obama. But he also recognizes that the income inequality that, that exists in America is just, it's just ridiculous. The fact that we pay so much more for our health care than any other developed country while not getting anything for it because we have all of these pharmaceutical companies that jack up the costs and even put the profit aside, just the administration of all of it costs something. All those people have to be paid. So around this time in 2016, we had the media just losing it, quite frankly, over this populism. They loved that. They said, oh, is this is this the rise of populism? Is this 1940, 1930s? Is this fascism? Trump is Hitler. We heard it all. Bernie Sanders, he's Lenin. He's going to control the country. The Bolsheviks are going to come and they're going to turn this country into Venezuela. All right? That's what we heard. And I was sitting there watching my TV like, oh, well, this is not good, you know? I posted a few Instagram stories as I did back in the day and still occasionally do that many people will find cringe. And, you know, just kind of echoed some of this this mainstream media fear-mongering. But let's, let's evaluate exactly what's wrong with populism. If populism's bad, what is the alternative? What do they want you to do? Well, there's populism, which, terms, which says, you know, the people want this, so let's try and give it to them. And then there's, then there's this kind of responsible parent approach that the media would like you to believe, which is the opposite, which is basically corporatism. It's, we don't really care what, what the people want. I mean, we'll campaign on certain things and, you know, but that's not really realistic. You can't really do that. And then they'll start up some kind of inner, inner factionary wars through the media, not actual wars, but, well, they start those as well. But they'll start some fights with each other to make you believe that, you know, there's there's a battle for the soul of the country and whatever, whatever. But they all agree on the, you know, the giant military bu- budgets for the military-industrial compacts and massive payouts to the healthcare industry and the insurance industry and the big banks, and they bail out all of these things. They all agree on those. That's what the media wants you to support the mainstream media. So I guess this six and a half minute rant was was a, was a preview to just get you to think about the word populism. It doesn't mean necessarily bad. It's not necessarily a bad thing. So what can it do for us? What can populism do for us? Well, let's define it. Populism is the broad idea that politics should not adhere to a set in stone ideology. You know, I'm a libertarian. I'm a socialist. I'm a, a, I'm a, a fiscal conservative. That's the, that's the phrase that we love. <laughs> I'm, I'm socially liberal, but I'm, oh, I'm just fiscally conservative. We don't need to adhere to set in stone ideologies. All of these things can offer certain things that are good. You can recognize that Cuba has built an excellent healthcare system and an, an excellent, or it might not be healthcare, an excellent education system without agreeing with Fidel Castro and the despotism that's, that's plagued that country for 70 years. 
So populism is the idea that you don't have to offer the people strict choices in elections. You know, this is what you can have or this is what you can't have, and you can't have anything in between. You're either a red socialist or you're a Tea Party Republican. That's what they'll have you believe. And after that, after you've elected them, your concerns are kind of irrelevant. Wait like a good little dog. You can vote in the midterms, but, I mean, they'll want you to vote for their party again. They won't offer you anything. If they're in power, they'll just say, oh, these people are Nazis or or these people are uh, socialists. They're going to come take take away your guns. I'm not saying that there, are, there aren't people in this country on the left that do want to do that. I'm not saying that, and I'm not saying I agree with them. But... They scare you into voting for them again or voting for the other, t- the other team. And after that, your concerns are irrelevant. They don't really care what you have to say. They don't care what will benefit you, as we've seen in this coronavirus. Well, where has populism gone wrong? Well, as the media is, is technically right, literally any time anything has gone wrong in history, it's probably been the fault of populism or, I mean, an outright dictatorship. But we don't really have those anymore. We're not a dictatorship, but just a, a despotic ruler. We don't really have those anymore. Since, you know, the early 1900s, late 1850s, we've largely relied on popular movements to bring people to power. People got smarter. They got more well-disposed as the feudal era ended. The fact that Hitler, Lenin, Che Guevara, Napoleon, Fidel Castro, Mussolini, the list could go on, have all been populists at the beginning, there's no reason to turn to dull, unimaginative corporate bureaucracy. And that's what they want you to believe. That anything populist is automatically a far-right or far-left ideology that's going to become authoritarian and kill millions of people and etc, etc, etc. That can happen. I agree. It's a danger. I don't want it. I don't want Nazism. I don't want Stalinist communism. I don't even want to live in China. Because none of those things actually benefited the people. They're not true populists. Yeah, sure, they might have they might have campaigned on that. But I, I mean, it's just it's just a dull argument. FDR was a populist. Yeah, sure. People that are very libertarian don't like FDR. They say he exaggerated the recession, etc., etc., etc. But I mean, at the time, he certainly improved the country more than Hoover. And how did things get so bad in the Great Recession? Well, that would have been the libertarian, laissez-faire capitalism that was the model. We didn't know it was necessarily wrong back in those days, but we sure do now. So what is the state of populism today? It's certainly settled since its rise in the mid-2010s in the modern sense. But by all metrics, it's still on the rise. We haven't peaked. The rise of Trump, isolationism, Brexit anti-refugee sediments in Europe especially, the Conservative Party under Boris Johnson in the UK, the growth of the Five Star Movement and the Northern League, it has an Italian name, in Italy, the Yellow Vest protests in France against probably the most corporatist leader anywhere in the world, Emmanuel Macron, the growth of green parties across Europe, yes, Environmentalism is extremely populist because it puts, you know, it, it puts the people, it might be a, a small faction that's growing though, people in our generation, Generation Z, 
I think most of us would have to agree that we're fairly concerned about climate change. We don't really want to live in a world where there's hurricanes every five seconds and floods and, you know, they, the, there being such high temperatures that people can't live in certain places in the world. These are all populist sentiments because they go against the corporate money-making operations. The election of numerous progressive Democrats to the U.S. House is another example of populism. I don't agree with her on many issues, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's championed populist sentiments. And to be honest, in, in, this, in this day and age, she is the only person in the entire U.S. Congress, at least in the House, I don't know about the Senate, that resisted passing the latest stimulus bill that gave all of this money to the scorpion funds for hospital industry and the insurance industry while effectively giving nothing to the actual people. So props to her on that. So yeah, the election of numerous people like her and the meteoric funding records set by the Bernie Sanders presidential 2020 campaign. I mean, it's almost ridiculous the amount of money that he raised off of people that are supposedly, I mean, you know, they'd like you to believe that they're all bums and they don't work. Many people would like you to believe that. But that's not true. I mean, it might be true for some of the people, but I think there's a lot of people that work very hard and don't have a lot of money that contributed their own hard-earned cash to combat the big donors that other candidates faced. Ultimately, the media helped him win. Joe Biden. Not necessarily the donors, because he didn't have them yet. But they knew that he was somebody that they could get to. And they'll be funding him all... They'll, they're happy to fund him now. They were getting real scared when it was going to be Bernie versus Trump. Because Bernie wouldn't take their money. I'm not necessarily a Bernie supporter. But they're really, really... If you, if you tell me they're not extremely happy that uh, Joe Biden is the nominee... Now they, now they feel happy in funding their preferred candidate. And the most non-interventionist and trade protective administration in decades, yes, the administration of Donald J. Trump, even with its shortcomings, is an example of populism. We had so many administrations straight in a row that were free trade, free trade, NAFTA, that, that idiotic free trade organization in the with China and all those other Southeast Asian countries, ASEAN, I think it was called. I can't remember exactly what it was called, so don't quote me on it. But NAFTA, these <laughs> no-trade tariffs towards countries that are ripping us off and tearing up our economy. Donald Trump did put an end to this, and he's done good work with China. He's done pretty good work with China even with his other shortcomings. I'll have to acknowledge that. We haven't had any wars started in this administration. People like to talk about how he's a warmonger, but I don't know. Obama sure bombed a lot more places and more, exacerbated more wars than Trump has. I mean, George W. Bush, obviously. Clinton, it goes back. Reagan, we haven't had a non-interventionist president in so long. These are, these are examples of populism, and it's only getting, it's only brewing more, because as they try to dissuade us from this idea to go back to normal, that's what Joe Biden's running on, to go back to normal, things can just go back the way they were, you know, 
where nobody nobody says anything racist. Okay, we're we're obviously racist. You know, you you get that part of Trump out. I agree. Nobody likes that. And you go back to these prepared remarks, very civil. The free trade opens up again. Nobody cares that U.S. workers are being taken advantage of because, oh, the, uh, the economy is doing fairly well. And, uh, you know, things are cheaper. That's consumerism. Things are made in China. It's, it's great. The middle class can buy a cheap iPhone or a cheap, maybe an iPhone is not the, the best example. But some cheap Chinese toys or some clothes made in Vietnam. Nothing against Vietnam. I think it's actually a nice country. I think it's probably the most successful socialist state that's ever existed. From personal experience, I've been there twice. But you can have all these things. But what does a a t-shirt mean when your fellow citizen is starving? Wouldn't you rather pay... $10 more for a t-shirt or, you know, maybe some more money for a car, but somebody else in the country actually has a job. The tax revenue will be more spread out because that person will be able to pay taxes more. You won't feel as burdened in that way. And ultimately, it will bring the country together more. The costs will be felt more equally. Instead of... a 30% of the country having all this cheap stuff while working in these, you know, professional jobs, doctors, lawyers, engineers, etc., etc. this professional class, the media figures. No, none of them are in the top 1% or the top 10% even. They grovel enough. They can, they can make buy and buy all the cheap things. But ultimately, you're not serving yourself when, if you're even if you're one of these people. I mean, I'll not, I'll not lie. I don't come from a working class background. I don't come from an upper class background. But yeah, these things can be good. These cheap things that we can have. But ultimately, they come back to bite you. What are the problems with populists today on the left and right? Both left wing and right wing populism seem to view each other as the enemy largely because of the social and cultural issues. It can be said that centrists are successful in distracting us from their corruption by fanning the flames of racism and jingoism and identity politics to keep us unorganized. So here's, the thing, here's a few things that I, observations I've, I can make. The left needs to stop putting racial justice at the front of every conversation. You can't work with someone if they've ever said something racist. Well, I hate to inform you, everybody in that set of people, Racism was was something that is, until recently, if not encouraged in mainstream society, it was tolerated. You can't bring up something somebody something somebody said about something vaguely racist. I mean, you have to judge them according to the time. You can't bring up something that somebody said that's vaguely racist thirty years ago and cancel them for it. They can never be worked with again. They're a Nazi, etc., etc. Yeah, sure. If something they said at the time is so abhorrent that we need to, quotes, cancel them. And that's a very special situation. But cancel culture is toxic. You need to be able to work with people to get your ends met. You need to, that's what the corporatists do. They'll work with people even if they don't like them. We need to evaluate what is our policy goals 
and then decide if it's worth canceling people. Because because somebody said a bad thing doesn't mean that they can never say a good thing. The right needs to stop encouraging and to control the small minority of it that has these white supremacist and white nationalist elements that are present, but certainly not representative of the movement. We can't allow people in Charlottesville to feel that it's okay to be associating with people from the Klan and people from Nazi organizations. I'll say it. I do not believe every single person at that Charlottesville rally was necessarily adheres to the beliefs of those two organizations. I get it. For people in the South, it's frustrating when you yourself are not a racist, but you're proud of your heritage. I get that the Civil War is about racism. I'm not saying it isn't. But is that really worth it? radicalizing so many people so that they do actually become white supremacists? Is that worth it? No, that's why that rally got so crazy in the first place. If people didn't have these fears about their jobs and about, you know, unrelenting immigration in the first place, then they wouldn't go to a rally with Nazis. But if you call them Nazis, well, they think, oh, well, I guess if we're going to be called Nazis, they're not so bad. They have, I don't know. Same things that we have in common. Not saying I subscribe to this ideology, but that's how it goes. So we need to we need to control and talk to people. First of all, control these white nationalist elements. Don't give them a platform, and then talk to people with legitimate concerns to prevent them from becoming radical. On this end, there needs to be an acknowledgement on the left: the green energy is not currently worker friendly. It isn't. I have family and energy. It pays. It pays many people throughout this country and the world. And their aversion to nuclear power, because of its its past as a, you know, it's dangerous, it's it's warmongering. It only empowers the oil and gas industries. Nuclear power is the single greatest thing that I think humans have ever invented. It requires so little input for so maximum output. But it's just crazy that we've shied away from this idea because of a few accidents. Research has demonstrated that if we have smaller nuclear power stations, then you don't get these big issues like happened in Japan and Chernobyl. If used on the correct scale and decentralized, they can be, they can be so safe, actually. And they, they don't, they don't, create nearly as much econo uh, environmental damage. The nuclear waste can be handled as these other things. The right needs to realize that there's a dire need to protect the minority citizens in America and that there is indeed a degree of systemic racism in this country. We've seen this. I mean, there was a guy, we've talked about it on the show, but there was a guy, Ahmed Arbery, that was running in his neighborhood, even if he did burgle a house. I'm not saying that he did. Evidence seems to demonstrate he was just going for a run. But even if he did, he has no right to be tracked down by two white guys in a truck and shot. He didn't fight at all. He was literally killed while running. That shouldn't happen. But instead, in the country that we live in, we have 
a legal system that didn't even arrest these people, not charge them, but they didn't even arrest them because there wasn't enough evidence when this whole thing was caught on video for two months until there was outrage. So there needs to be, I'm not saying that racism is, at the, is, is everywhere. I'm not agreeing with that sentiment because I don't think it's true. I don't think all white people should be ashamed. And I don't, I don't think that racism fueled the building of America. I don't think the entire country was built on slavery because those things aren't objectively true. They're partially true, but they're not, they're not objectively true in, a, in their entirety. You don't need to feel guilty because of the color of your skin, because of something that people did 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Because ultimately, if you, if you want to play the oppression Olympics, somebody was discriminated against in relation to you if you go back 200 years. What is, what is the threshold? We're talking about slavery. Then we're not talking about other things that happened. So let's stop playing the oppression Olympics while trying to solve the experience that black people in America face today. Next thing, defense spending needs to go down. We recently passed an $800 billion defense bill. The next highest country, Russia, spends, I think, $120,000. Uh, sorry, $120 billion. Why are we spending like six, five or six times more than the next highest spender? I mean, I believe it's important to, to remain militarily superior. When you're the top country, you can't just stop funding the military. I don't agree with that sentiment at all. But why are we spending five times more than our next biggest competitor? It's because of the military-industrial complex. So somebody needs to take that to task. This is something that both the populist right and the populist left can get behind. Taxes need to go up, way up, on the top earners in companies and redistributed into suffering urban and rural communities because in some cases, we have companies like Amazon that are destroying small businesses, malls. 30% of small malls have closed, I think, in the last five or six years than there were before that. 30% of malls. If you live in a small town, a mall is a central business. It's an element of community. And these things are going out of business because of these retailers that are online. I get the future of, of stuff is online. I'm not saying that we need to force malls to stay open. But there was a presidential candidate that I supported, Andrew Yang, a Democrat, that had an idea called UBI. It's not a new idea. But he rationalized it for us. It's not unlimited welfare for everyone. You can't. Nobody can survive on $1,000 a month or not, not only leave any kind of life that you want to live. I survive for it on $1,000 a month, but you wouldn't want it to stay like that for very long, trust me. And people already are getting welfare, so all you're doing is you're putting that money directly. You're not allowing it to be siphoned off by government funds. The idea is that everybody gets a certain amount of money per month. His figure was 1200 So if you don't like that number, you can take it down. The idea is that when you give each each American citizen, it doesn't matter how rich you are, even $500 a month. If you have a town of 40,000 people, 30,000 people, 15,000 people, where things are going out of business, people are leaving, the youth don't want to stay. If you give people that money, 
That pumps millions into these towns directly. And then people go and buy stuff from places near them. And if they buy stuff on Amazon, then that's okay. If Amazon's getting taxed, as they should be, which they're not currently getting taxed, Jeff Bezos is about to become a trillionaire, and Amazon doesn't get taxed. If Amazon's getting taxed, then everybody wins. We know that climate change, the impact of climate change, is going to be felt mostly by working class and middle class Americans. When people lose their houses, if you have a bunch of money, yeah, you can afford to repair it, or you can afford the assurance, insurance. But so little people even own properties anymore. One third of Americans rent. So this is going to be felt mostly by, again, the majority of the population, not those at the top. So climate change needs to be taken seriously in any, any element of populism that exists. Immigration needs to be restricted and laws enforced. You can't have millions of people coming here. It depresses wages. Yes, I, I understand Bernie's argument that if you have a federal minimum wage of a living wage, then, you know, if you apply that to the immigrants as well, then it doesn't depress the wage. You still just can't have millions of people coming to the country. Can't let the demographics of the country change overnight. That is not a white nationalist point of view. I mean, you just can't have, like, in five years, like, people from South America going from, like, 20% of the population to, like, 50%, okay? It's just not sustainable. So you need to figure out a, a balance. You need to reform the laws and then enforce them. And until those laws are changed, you need to enforce the laws in the books. People need to understand that there are rules here. Exceptions are obviously need to be made for people that are in dire circumstances, but not everybody can be let in. And you can't call people Nazis for in enforcing the laws. It's not the same thing as rounding up the Jews, okay? I get that it's traumatic when families are separated. I understand that. But anytime you commit a crime, it needs to be properly enforced. And... I mean, we need to change the laws. I agree. But you need to enforce the laws on the books. And the converse of that is you do actually need to change the laws, not just, you know, arrest millions of more people. That's not the answer. Because, I mean, we're facing a population decline. We need people to come here to continue to be an influential nation economically, militarily. We need people. And the people that are here are not having enough children. So if you're not going to start fertility programs and now that's starting to sound like Nazi Germany. Not necessarily saying that fertility programs are not a way, but if you're not going to do something about it, you need to let people come here. You need to understand that it's it's actually beneficial to our country. Not every immigrant, illegal or legal, is beneficial. Most of the legal ones are because we don't let in people that can't contribute anything. But... That needs to be part of the discussion. But obviously the people that lived here their whole lives, a lot longer than me, I'm a citizen of course, but I didn't grow up in America. And I don't think these people should be deported. They don't, they're not, they don't feel, you know, Nicaraguan or Guatemalan or whatever. They probably feel American. Been to American schools. 
And I think the American dream needs to be, it needs to be available. It can't be available to everyone. When it was, when it was in practice, there were a lot less people here. There was a lot more land. There was a lot more possibility. And it was a lot harder for those people to get here. So that also had a natural bottleneck on the scale of immigration. So there needs to be something worked out for the people that are here, and there needs to be something worked out so that it's easier to get here. But there does need to be restrictions. That's all I'll say on that. Who are the enemies of populism? Well, in short, the United States Congress. With few exceptions, they're beholden to donors that could not care for their constituents. They adhered to old, decades old, rigid economic ideologies, like free trade, even when the negative results speak for themselves. I'm not saying that all, element, all elements of free trade are bad. I'm not a communist and not a socialist. I don't dislike this country. For somebody that grew up outside of it, I'd say I'm very patriotic. I don't think it's a bad country. I think it's the best country in the world. But that doesn't mean that we can't improve. And it doesn't mean that we need to use 1950-era McCarthyism in terms of other aspects of the economy. Like you can't have any social programs increase. Otherwise, it's communism. We don't, we need to take away, I think populism is the perfect label. Because we can't, we don't need to call things socialism, okay? It's not necessarily not an American value to help your neighbor. I might catch some criticism for this, but the people that claim, the people that are very libertarian, that take the example of the American West, you know, people moving out, manifest destiny, forging their own place, that's not entirely true. The America that you have grown to love was built by state intervention. The state conquered those lands from the Indians. That's a completely different story. I'm not going to get into the ethics of that. But they offered that land for very cheap. Those people have never been able to buy those large ranches that they got without government assistance. Those were government-subsidized properties. So there's no such thing as people, as a poor person just forging out in, in, in the majority situation. Yes, there is people that are one in a million that create something and they create immense wealth for themselves. For the average person, state control, or at least state-assisted access, is a very important thing. The state exists to help people, to correct where natural human tendencies go wrong. What else can I say on the enemies? Did I mention countries and international organizations that take billions of our dollars, NATO, the UN, the World Health Organization, who we've recently seen, is completely covered up for China and indeed caused us a lot of strife. They accept our money. They criticize us. I'm not saying that we should control the world. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the amount of money that is spent on these things should be fair. We should not be spending so much more than other countries of similar wealth to support organizations that ultimately don't have our best interests at heart. Think tanks and lobbyist groups. These are also the enemies. Most of the mainstream media is indeed an enemy of the people. The mainstream media has a lower trust rating 
That's the lowest trust rating of any institution in the country below Congress. What does that tell you? They're all bought out by a very few at the top. Well, they don't think that. They think they're doing a reasonable job. I'm not saying, again, I'm not advocating for us to go out and fire all of them. Or I think rhetoric that suggests that they're evil people is wrong. But they're serving a purpose that is not for the, for the most of the people. What can we do now, if you agree with me in this situation? Vote for candidates that have a populist economic policy, even if they have different religious or social views. Social views are rarely resolved by laws. Economic issues can only be resolved by laws. So if you have someone that's advocating for things that you like, like trade protectionism and higher taxes, and during this time, policies that can actually help middle class and working class people and even upper professional class people, they would all benefit. There's probably only 15% of people that would not benefit from those types of things. If you have someone running for your local seat in the state house or U.S. house or Senate seat, then you need to vote for them, even if they're anti-gun. Because you can call them and tell them that if enough people call in your constituency and tell them that you know you don't appreciate their view on guns, then... They should realize that they need to take a softer stance on it. Or even if they end up voting for it, there'll be plenty of other people that care about that. You can't be a one-issue voter. Engage with people of similar ideals across the partisan divide. As I said before, you can't cancel people. You can't say, because someone said something racist once, or something sexist, or something against an organization that you like, However bad it may be, well, if it's really bad, then yeah, you might have to you might have to cancel them. I don't agree with cancel culture, but yes, there's some people that say things that are absolutely abhorrent, and they shouldn't be they shouldn't be have a position of power. I agree. There are certain thresholds, but not every misdemeanor is one of those thresholds. You can still work with people again. You can criticize them, and then you can support a plan of theirs if they have a good idea later down the road. If you don't like Trump and you don't like his immigration policy, if you're left-leaning, then criticize him for that. If he makes a comment about majority black countries or African countries, calling them shithole countries, then yeah, criticize him by all means. But don't hold a trade policy that can benefit you or... I mean, there haven't been numerous policies that have been good with this administration because of the overreach of these corporatists that have infiltrated it, like Mitch McConnell and all of his economic advisors. But if you see something that somebody's doing that's good, you can still support that. You don't need to you know, have this rigid party alignment that never supports something that's beneficial for the people of this country just because somebody said something you don't like once. Next thing. Don't blindly give candidates your vote because you like them or they're a good person or they did some military service. I'm looking at everyone who supported Pete Buttigieg. I liked Pete Buttigieg, I have to say. I was one of you. I was like, this guy's nice, you know? He, he's civil. He, he had military service. 
I think it is. I'm not necessarily somebody that subscribes to identity politics, but yeah, it would be nice if you had an individual who was gay that reached a position of power. I think that would be nice for people that were gay to, you know, remind them that those types of things are not closed off for them. He was religious. I think he could have, if he had different policy, he'd be a great candidate. But his policy was not for the people. No, no, no. It was all about the think tanks and the corporations. And ultimately, it was all about his own power. He did not have the people of this country at heart. So examine their record and their policy aims. I don't care if it's for your school district or if it's for your student body president. They'll obviously have different aims. You're not worried about their trade stance for your student body president or your school school board person that you're voting for in your county or your ward. But examine their record. Everybody has a record. Everybody has policy aims for whichever office they're seeking. Some people would argue that I'm arguing for class warfare. And this is just not true. I don't subscribe to communism. I don't subscribe to socialism. I don't think that your average, I don't think that anybody who has more than a high school education is the enemy. I'm not, a, I'm not an enemy of intellectuals. I'm not an enemy of the arts. It isn't class warfare to think that people who have billions and billions of dollars should be paying a very high tax. That is not the American dream is, you know, a couple of people, whether by privilege or by their own work, get to take up like 50% of the wealth. I don't know what the exact figure is. Don't quote me on that. But an enormous amount of wealth in the top 2%. 5%, not even the top 10%. A very, very small percentage of people hold so much wealth. So it's not class warfare. If that's class warfare, then yeah. But class warfare, the, the, the term is usually used to describe, you know, the working class and the middle class, 40%, 30%, 60%, whatever it is, rising up against the professional classes, the doctors and the lawyers and whatever, and, you know, doing away with all those things that, Markings of privilege, I'm not against attaining a degree of wealth. In fact, all we're trying to do is allow more people to have that opportunity. doesn't mean that everything is going to be equal. It just means that, I mean, think about how much a million dollars is. It's a lot of money, right, to most people. Now think about how much $10 million is and absorb it, an enormous amount of money. You know, I could buy anything I ever wanted with $10 million. You could buy a nice house. You could set yourself up. Buy whatever car you wanted. I don't want a car that's $200,000, but I could have one if I wanted. car I want costs less than $40,000. So, I mean, you could still have an, a very nice life before you're even taxed at a high percentage. I'm advocating for a near flat rate tax on everyone below, well, within the bands of, you know, earning $60,000 or higher until 10 or $15 million. Same tax. Very equal. Only after you get that. And then even, even people are making $30 million that have $50 million. These people are still not going to get taxed 
exorbitantly. Sorry, I keep saying that word wrong. Exorbitantly. I'm talking about people that are making hundreds of millions of dollars, billions. We have a high tax bracket in this case, maybe up to 50%. Because ultimately, you don't need that much money. And the the trickle-down economics argument is just bullshit, quite frankly. They just use that money for stock buybacks of their own companies, for... They do not create... That money does not go into creating, for the most part, jobs and wealth for other people. It doesn't. Might have been back in 1980, but with the the online nature of most companies these days, the biggest ones, that is not true, okay? It's a a falsity. Trickle-down economics does not work in 2020. Trickle-up economics is what we need. Because that is what's proven to work. An economy is based on consumers. A capitalist economy is based on people spending money at all levels to buy products. It's not based on a few people controlling so much wealth and hoping for a tiny little bit to fall down. And I know this has been a really long episode, but I feel very strongly about this. So if you've listened to the whole thing, we'll have more on this in the coming weeks. And if you'd like to participate in those discussions, I'd, I mean, I'm going to get some guests on here. Um, I'd love to talk about this with people. And you don't have to agree with me. You could be a libertarian. You could be a... You should you could subscribe to identity politics. I don't have anything necessarily against that to the point that I won't talk to you. All I'm asking for you is that you talk to me and you can listen to other points of view and you can you can have a conversation without your mind being made up before you go in. That's all I'm asking for. So if you want to do that, DM me on Instagram, talk to me, send me a message, etc. etc. I think that's gonna be it for this episode. And I really hope that people listen to this because this is something I care a lot about. Because it affects all of us. I'm not working class. I didn't grow up that way. Yeah, I grew up comfortably, middle class. A lot of these things probably, if everything goes right in my life, they won't affect me for too long. To the point that they affect a lot of people. I'm hoping. But ultimately, everybody has a better country when you can relate more to your neighbor. I grew up in a place, for those people who are listening outside of South Africa, I don't want to grow up, I don't want my kids to grow up in the same kind of environment that I grew up in, where you live inside of a walled house and you're scared of all the other people in the country because they might rob you because of the massive inequality, or you have private schools where people are trucked in from all over the city. No, I want to be able to identify with my fellow citizens. And yeah, you might get some more cheap goods, if you have things that ship jobs overseas. But ultimately, the quality of life decreases. Income, not necessarily income, but wealth equality, not to the point that it's completely equal, but life will improve for everyone, even if prices go up on some things. You might pay $10 more for a t-shirt, but somebody in the U.S. will have a job. You might pay some more for your car, but people that are working class in the Rust Belt will have jobs again. And don't believe that it can't happen. Because that's what they'll tell you. That's what they said. They're like, Trump says he can do all this stuff, but it can't happen. You know, you can't have a more fair trading situation with China. You absolutely can. Of course you can. Yeah, we're not going to go back 
to producing and exporting a bunch of cars all over the world. And maybe there are some industries that we're not so, that maybe we can pay less for and have them made overseas. That can't be every economy. We can't be a country that produces nothing just so we can buy it for cheaper. And that's where free market capitalism has gone wrong. So I could talk all day about this, and I know this has been a long episode. I've already been through the whole thing. So thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that today. I certainly had a great time writing that up and sharing my thoughts, as always. Podcast, of course, only gets better as more people listen. And our message, if you agree with our message in terms of the politics, can only be spread as more people talk about it. We all know this through through Instagram activism. So please tell three friends about the show this week. Word of mouth is the OG advertising technique, of course. Remember, episodes are on Sundays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays, Mountain Standard Time. at six hours behind South Africa. But they might be off schedule, and I hope you'll understand that. I'm, of course, working and going to college. And I'd rather bring you a quality episode than one that's on time. We have some great guests and episode ideas lined up for the next few. So keep an eye on my Instagram story for clues about what's coming. And if you're listening on Anchor, that's the link you click to my bio. Just be aware you could be listening and subscribe to my dad to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or even on the Anchor free app as well. Follow me on Instagram at E-M-X-R-I-L. And you can follow my Twitter. I created a special Twitter account for this podcast, which I'd like to get more active on. It's at State of Us Pod. That's S-T-A-T-E-O-F-U-S-P-O-D on Twitter. And I'm gonna I'm gonna be sharing a lot of stuff there because that's a lot of type of stuff that we talk about goes down. And not just the 40-year-old uncle of one of our listeners. I want you, my fellow 18, 17, 19, 20-year-old, to get a Twitter account because a lot of stuff goes down on there. But if you don't want to, I mean, that's okay. So with episode 13 done and dusted, we will not be charging you with anything. Sir, ma'am, you are free to walk yourself out. There is no meme to be seen here.